This would be like the equivalent of me writing a song called Lindsay Smells Like Axe Body Spray. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch. This is a place where you can come as you are, as you were, as we want you to be. That's not even the song that we're That's doing. That's not the point. It's the vibe. Oh, okay, sure. Come as a friend. Uh, as the, a known enemy. The podcast in a heart-shaped <laughs> box. <laughs> Hello, it is I, Lindsay Tucker. I am your host for the day, and I am here joined, as always, with... Aviv Rubenstein, host for the day. That's weird. That's a that's a new one. <laughs> well, I am the host of the hour. Yeah, you're in the driver's seat today. Correct. But we're today. both the hosts of this show. What is this we're show? We're both Lindsay? the hosts of the show. This is the show where we give you all the stories, the backstories, the cultural influence, the cultural commentary, the complaining, and many other things about music. Yeah. Great. 90s January concludes. 90s January is concluding today with what song? Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, 1992 anthem. One. One anthem of, well, we'll find out exactly what it is an anthem for. Teen Spirit, I guess. Yes. Disaffected youth. Sure. (laughs) How's your week been, Lindsay? Uh, my week has been great. We're just great. How is yours? Uh, fine. We were both stressed out last week, and I'm slightly less stressed this week, but not none stressed. And uh, yeah, that's that's where we're at. That's the whole story. Very excited to get into this week's episode. But before we do that, we have a little bit of listener feedback, a little bit of mailbag. So... Listeners, Lindsay just likes to walk away from the computer at random times and then expect me to fill. I can still hear. I have to let my dog in or out. Yeah, in or out. First bit of mailbag comes from listener Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Tracy says, hello, love the show. I've listened to all of SVU and decided to give this one a try. Glad I did. You're welcome, Tracy. In the Titanic episode, you were talking about how long the movie is. I was in my early 20s when it came out. Yes, you have Gen X listeners. This, is, this, this month is all about our Gen X listeners. <laughs> yes, you have Gen X listeners. I then got the VHS of the movie. It's so long that it was a two-tape set, and it ended like an intermission in a musical. Right after, Ismay says, I assure you, I assure you, she can sink. Uh, and then you can continue to tape too. For whatever reason, I remember the VHS's ending right after they like bang it out and she like puts her hand on the glass. Mm, incorrect. I guess so. I had a friend that, she goes on to say, I had a friend that in early 20s style couch surfed with me for a few months. We would watch the first half with all the romance and glamour and skip the second tape where chaos ensues. We still joke about it to this day saying, oh, the ship sinks. Never saw that part. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Tracy. I can 100% relate to this. I also watched the first half way more than I watched the second half. I also wrote her back and let her know that I have a similar thing with The Notebook where (laughs) 
uh, like when Allie comes back and drops her suitcases and just like looks up at Noah and shrugs and then I just it's like movie's over movie's all over. the shit with old people people does not happen <laughs> that's fucking happens, over that, that's like interspersed the entire movie though uh, yeah but I don't know who those people are they're is just that, reading a book is that where you just <laughs> is that where you get up and leave leave the computer to let your dog either in or out <laughs> yes um, those are my breaks i saw i saw a tiktok recently about someone who had never seen the second part of the sound of music for the same reason where they like thought they like po- popped in what they thought was a movie called the sound of music part two but was just the second half of the sound of music and had no idea that there were like nazis involved in that movie wow wow <laughs> pretty good so they never got to see edelweiss though which is one of the most moving no, parts of the whole movie that, that fucking that song is lame that guy is hot the nazi and... is hot no christopher Plummer. oh christopher Plummer. pop of Daddy Von Trapp, and he's singing Edelweiss to distract the Nazis so his family can escape. It's very moving. Daddy Von Trapp played a Nazi in the movie Inside Job. Inside Man. Oh. Inside Man. Inside Man. We also have an email from Lady Loon. Uh, okay. It's, the subject is The Beatles. <laughs> All caps. Okay. So this is from Victoria. Okay, so I'm walking through the park on my way to market, pushing my daughter in her push chair, listening to my Friday treat lyrics for lunch episode, when all of a sudden I'm shouting, no guys, come on. Daughter, unfazed, kicking her legs. As the lyrics for, as the lyrics for lunch, English informant's best friend, Freddie Weber from Freddie and the Fabs. Shout out to Freddie. Uh, I, f- I feel it is my duty as a British citizen to ask you both, even beg, please, please, please stop comparing all British artists and bands to the Beatles. We have so many artists and bands other than the four Liv- Liverpudlians you speak of so often who have had a strong influence on other artists and bands. That is all. Cheers. Love you guys. Victoria. So. Not Lindsay- the queen. Well, not the queen. Lindsay, what episode was Victoria listening to? She was listening to Oasis. Okay, so Victoria, I hear your. We but hear she your... sent a follow up. She oh, did send she a follow up, which I think I forwarded no, to you. you didn't. And she was like, I forgive you all. It's Oasis is obviously heavily influenced by the Beatles, but. I was about to say, just... Victoria, not the hill you want to die on with the Oasis. <laughs> I think she was already exhausted by our Beatlesing. Man. And so she started hearing us go down that road again. And she was like, WTF, Mang. And she emailed us. But then she followed it up with like, I get it in this case, but come on. Okay. Well, oh, great. I also am sick of comparing everyone to the Beatles. So I'm with you, Victoria. Okay, then we'll stop. We'll do better. We, we'll, we'll be better. We're sorry for all the hurt we've caused you and your family. We this will compare week, no one to the Beatles today. <laughs> this week, we are going to be talking about all about how Nirvana was influenced by the Beatles. Nope. Nope. Try again. Okay. So this week, what are, what are we talking about this week, Lindsay? We're talking about Nirvana, and we're talking about the song Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is really the song that broke them through into the mainstream. Aviv, what is your experience with the song? I'll tell you, Lindsay. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Um, so 
I think I first been heard waiting this- all week to ask you that, I, baby. Yeah, um, I think I first <laughs> heard this song. I think I heard the song for the first time in seventh grade when my seventh grade English teacher, Mr. Behe, played it at the seventh Behe. grade. Please spell that. B e h e. Okay. Behe. Okay. And he was like the cool English teacher because he was he he was in a band uh, when he was in college or whatever, and so he played that at the talent show with a bunch of students, and I was like, "Well, this is the best song I've ever heard." And then, cut to five or six years later, uh, my friends Nick, Brandon, Numbers, and I. So, okay, my friends Nick and Brandon, they had this friend named Numbers, and he, the reason that. We called him numbers was because any question you asked him, he would count on his fingers. What? So, like, hey, hey, numbers, where do you want to like eat? Like, he today? had a tick. Yeah, he had a tick. Um, and real he was, nice, really nice. You well, guys. we're bad people, and so we went to we did karaoke with numbers, and he sang "Smells Like Teen Spirit." And didn't know all the words, which you're not expected to know karaoke because there's a TV there for you to do it. But he he didn't know the word denial, like when, when reading it, because the song ends a denial, a denial, a denial, a denial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. he's reading it off the prompter, the, the karaoke prompter, and was singing a Daniel, a Daniel, a Daniel, a Daniel. <laughs> so now I Next cannot. Next door neighbor. next door neighbor which turns out to that's the that's the the actual lyric um so i can't hear smells like teen spirit without at the specifically the end of it without thinking a daniel a daniel a daniel a daniel love it well numbers i feel ya i mispronounce stuff all the time (laughs) numbers was amazingly homophobic so i don't know if you want to slide into that that at all Numbers, fuck you. <laughs> and so let's just back it up before they were in the mainstream. Nirvana was formed in 1987 in Aberdeen, Washington, which is like two hours west of Seattle. So they didn't take on the name Nirvana until 1988, which is also the year they released their first album, Bleach, which was released by Sub Pop. Right. And we'll go into Sub Pop later, but um, do you know anything about them? Um, so yeah, Sub Pop was a Seattle-based record label, and they championed a bunch of indie grunge bands as they broke onto the scene. I don't exactly know who was on Sub Pop, maybe Bikini Kill, along with Nirvana, but they but Sub Pop is like a cottage brand in Seattle now, and they sell like Sub Pop stickers in the airport, which is like kind of shitty, but right. whatever. Right. Okay. So anyway, Bleach did okay on the college radio circuit, but nothing like the success of their second album, Nevermind, which was released in September of 1991. This time it was by major label Geffen Records, which also goes by DGC. I thought I thought Nevermind was their third album. What? When was In Utero? After that? In Utero came after. And there was even some oh. kind of like compilation of B-sides, that I think, that came out between Nevermind and In Utero. I so as as a person who grew up in the '90s, I always thought that In Utero was before Nevermind. So I'm learning. I learned a thing today. Yes, you did. You're right. You're welcome. Okay. So okay. Geffen, DKG, DGC, DGC, David Geffen Company. Hmm. So they switch to Geffen. Uh, okay. So Nevermind included songs such as "Come as You Are," "Smells Like Teen Spirit." 
territorial pissings and drain you. Just to name a few. Now, this is from the Indian news site Scroll. Although Nevermind wasn't an immediate success, in four months, the album would go on to topple Michael Jackson from the top of the Billboard charts and bring about a rock and roll renaissance. Suddenly, grunge was on every music executive's lips and in every music listener's cassette collection. The seminal album catapulted Kurt Cobain, Dave Grohl, and Chris Novoselic of the three-piece band into global stardom, leading Rolling Stone to later declare that Nevermind was the album that guaranteed the 90s would not suck. (laughs) Wow. Great. Why did they think the 90s were going to suck? Why did they think the 90s were going to suck? Rolling Stone said that? Yeah. Uh, Were they... I mean, okay. So are we going to talk a little bit about like the history of grunge? Yes, that was the next thing we we're going to talk about. And it made me think like maybe they thought the 90s were going to suck because the 80s were so heavily dominated by like hair bands. Cock rock, yeah. But also, yeah. Pro- I mean, like from what we know about Rolling Stone, they probably were also talking about rap and like, you know, guitar music going away in favor of like rap music, like kind of this vaguely racist sentiment but mm-hmm. maybe I, I might just be pro- projecting maybe. my fears you might your fears your deepest fears all right so talk about grunge what is grunge and why it was not was nirvana so influential are you asking me or telling me i'm asking you i'm saying let's have a conversation about it let's have a conversation about it so um th- music kind of goes in this in in this pendulum motion in terms of like production versus let's say rawness or authenticity and so toward the end of the 80s things are getting so 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 produced think of of like any you know think of like um van halen or something right and also like synthesized pop and also synthesized pop like flock you know flock of seagulls so everything is now electric everything is now digital no real instruments a lot of the complaints that like old fogies are making about pop music today they were making at the end of the 80s too and so in the very very late 80s and early 90s there was kind of a reaction to that which was then later labeled grunge which was basically like garage music garage rock is what they called it before grunge and it was raw very unproduced in several ways and kind of um a little bit less like braggadocious so like all of the 80s hair metal bands were talking about like essentially how big their dicks are and how many um women they can sleep with and you know grunge also led to the beginning of this kind of disaffected generation x the voice of like disaffected generation x who realizes that the earth sucks the world's a terrible place and is singing about like real emotions and their depression and anxiety and stuff and it it's kind of an evolution of punk right for sure yeah it's like an offshoot of punk and it's also characterized by and this goes along with a punk but like a certain guitar sound and vocal delivery yes so screechy screechy vocals but not in the way of like a screamo sort of thing um and the and the guitar sound there's like a specific thing about the guitar sound that Nirvana like embraced and then rejected eventually, which was like no overdubs, right? Like you have like one distorted guitar and you have like a two, what's called a tube screamer, which 
if you want to uh, read Lindsay Tucker's Tube Screamer review in Guitar World magazine. It's not a review. It's the history of the Tube Screamer. Oh, you did the history of the Tube Screamer? I know. I, I remember I read it. But so you know the it's history of the Tube Screamer. in Premier Guitar. In fact, Wikipedia cited me as a source. Ooh. So tell me about the history of the Tube Screamer. Oh, my God. I wrote it 20 years ago. Uh, it's a distortion pedal. Mm-hmm. And it's made by Ibanez. <laughs> <laughs> and the original was and made it's by Ibanez. Super yeah. versatile, and or like it became super adapted, and uh, yes, people love it. So right, it mimics like an overdriven tube amplifier. So like, uh, if you can picture in your head or, or in your mind's ear, like the sound that Jimi Hendrix's guitar makes, which is like super distorted, that wasn't done with any effects. He just like turned his amp too loud and the, the speaker tubes were distorting. Right. And so in order to not damage amps and to, and to kind of control the sound a little bit more, these pedals were invented that are tube screamers that do just that. They like mimic the sound of an overdriven amplifier, specifically an overdriven tube amplifier. And they're so ubiquitous now that I have one that has like eight different modulations on it. So I can like turn it to like, this is the sound of a TS-808. This is the sound of a horny ram. This is the sound of a TS9 tube screamer. Um, so they're basically everywhere. Um, okay, back to scroll. There was a generation gap to be filled, and it was filled by independent record labels like Sub Pop in Seattle, which signed bands such as Nirvana. I don't know this band. Mud Honey? Yeah, Mud Honey rules. Oh, sweet. Soundgarden and Sonic Youth, who would otherwise have simmered on this local scene. It was this slow but steady tectonic shift in the underground that made the Seattle sound. As Glenn Branca of the band Theoretical Girls explained in an interview, so in the 80s, you had this gigantic underground movement. Now, eventually, that underground movement would turn into Nirvana, you know? I mean, Nirvana didn't sell 10 million records because they were so fucking great, which they were, but that audience had been building for more than 10 years. Yeah, and so grunge was associated with the Seattle sound or, or with the city of Seattle so heavily that one of the kind of earliest, well, not earliest, but one of the most famous grunge bands is Pearl Jam, who aren't from Seattle. They're from Southern California, but they all moved to Seattle after forming the band in order to take advantage of the Seattle sound that they were trying to, I don't want to say mimic, but they were trying to like be a part of be a part of that scene yeah scenesters yeah pearl jam's a bunch <laughs> of posers you heard it here first so if you noticed uh i mentioned that bleach came out with sub pop but then nevermind came out with geffen. dcg yeah. geffen so nirvana broke with sub pop because kurt's frustration with the lack of promotion and poor distribution compared with some other bands on sub pop so he felt like he wasn't getting and not it's not just that sub pop is a small record label that can't support the bands it's that they weren't getting the same attention that other bands on sub pop were correct and if there's anything to know about kurt cobain it's that he was incredibly sensitive person since he was a kid and so if he felt slighted or humiliated like it would he would spiral sure um, okay, so obviously there was accusations of the band selling out, blah, blah, blah. By moving to Geffen. By moving to Geffen. So here's a little clip. Uh, this is one of the last, according to YouTube, I mean, is this really one of the last clips? This is, according to YouTube, one of the last 
later interviews uh, with Kurt Cobain. Of his, of his life, you mean? Right. I really don't care. I, I don't. I know that I'm too stubborn to allow myself to ever compromise their music, or you know, get so wrapped up in it and involved to where it's going to, you know, make turn us into big rock stars. I mean, I just don't feel like that. Everyone else accuses us of it, but you know, we're everyone not as popular as everyone thinks, or we're not as rich as everyone thinks. You know, it's just. It's just. We've always had a good sense of humor. I don't think that's very, been translated very well, you know, but we'd rather laugh about it. Ha, ha, ha. You know what really surprised me, though, is you're, you're, you're pretty bright, and you're like, okay, sir. Okay, we're out of there. <laughs> Why is it surprising that he's pretty bright? Fuck you, lady. Seriously, he's like a genius. Yeah, and and he did have a good sense of humor. I mean, like, they, they were people much like the Beatles lionize nirvana what? i'm serious <laughs> i thought we said no Beatles. i know i know but in ter- but in terms of like deifying these figures who were just like flesh and blood human beings they people do the same thing with nirvana and they forget that these these are a bunch of like goof-offs they forget people forget that nirvana like were funny and didn't take everything so fucking seriously all the time Especially considering what happened to Kurt in the end. Right, 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 right. They're like, oh, he must have been tortured his entire existence, which is, isn't exactly true. He had a rough teen go of it. His mom kicked him out of the house. He went to live with his dad and stepmom. They, she had two kids, and they had their own kid. And then the stepmom like kicked Kurt out for being a teenager and like playing pranks on the little kids and not being super nice and then he was like bouncing around from his aunts and I think his grandparents and then back to his mom's and I think he felt rejected in a lot of ways um and always like craved family so it wasn't didn't have the easiest go of it that's true that's true so why don't we take a quick listen and watch smells like teen spirit this is the probably the first song that we've ever done that I know all the words to (laughs) So this would be the tube screamer pedal engaged. This song still like rips. It does. 
I haven't like sat down and listened to it in probably five or ten years and watched the video in maybe 20 years, but yeah, it's very, very good. in the video just a quick recap of what we just saw uh kurt chris and dave are playing in what looks like a high school gym there are these weird kind of zombie goth cheerleaders um and like a janitor slow dancing with a mop and um his the audience kind of overwhelms them eventually and and takes over the the whole thing with like kind of moshing and slam dancing or whatever you want to call it they're overwhelmed by their fans yeah okay so according to louder sounds kurt came up with the concept of the video by taking inspiration from the ramones 1979 film rock and roll high school and also jonathan kaplan's 1979 teenage film punk film over the edge so and over the edge is something that kurt talked a lot about all the time and said like it's basically 
defined my existence. Um, do you know that movie? No, I'm not familiar with it at all. Damn, I was really hoping you were. <laughs> so basically, it's like a bunch of kids in a planned community go berserk. Um, this is a little recap from Trunkworthy. I wasn't going to read this if you were going to give like your recap, but now I'm going to give you the recap. Great, because I don't know it. <laughs> okay. Over the Edge is coming-of-age cinema's most visceral downward spiral, mm. but it's also a phoenix of perpetual reinvigoration that bears regular, repeated, and perhaps even ritualistic viewing. Based on an actual incident in Foster City, California, Over the Edge chronicles what happens when teenagers are penned in and pent up in a prefabricated community with nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no way out except through sex, drugs, rock and roll, BB guns, vandalism, and ultimately life-threatening violence. It's like ch children revolt. Yeah. So Matt Dillon, in his film debut, is the leader of the underage residents of New Granada, an under-construction town where kids come where kids comprise a full quarter of the population. They repeatedly suffer police harassment over infractions as serious as belt buckle shaped like a pot leaf. That's like literally happened in, in my town, though. Oh, really? The kids were so harassed by police. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, I got harassed by police for having a piece of lettuce in my car. The devil's lettuce? Right. They were, he was like... I'm going to be taking this back to the lab. I was like, you do that, friend. Have fun. So <laughs> um, the confrontation between New Granada's teens and adults quakes with suspense. The chaos, goes, the chaos goes right up to the edge of irreversible catastrophe. In time, correction, in quotes, correction looms for various troublemakers, while those left behind create a powerful display of silent support. The five stair steps, soothing 1970 hit Ooh Child swells on the soundtrack, assuring all involved that things are going to get easier and brighter. <laughs> that moment may well function as an uncanny forecast of the years ahead. After the radical 60s and the narcissistic 70s, the rotting remnants of which boil over in the teens' uprising, the 80s promised cultural hangover bombs by way of Reagan, MTV, Don't Worry, Be Happy, and all the stuff griped about in first-wave hardcore punk lyrics. Insistence that things were getting easier and brighter came cheap and plentiful. Cinematically, Over the Edge has echoed throughout virtually subsequent American films regarding outsider adolescence, from Penelope Spheris's Plunksploitation favorite, Suburbia, to I, Harmony... I think you mean punksploitation, not plunksploitation? I said punks. I said punk exploitation. I could at least know what punk is. No, you, I did not. You absolutely did. Of even the future, just drop in that sound bite right here. <laughs> From Penelope Spheris's punk exploitation favorite. <laughs> punk exploitation favorite, suburbia. <laughs> Screenwriter Tim Hunter even directed Edge's most potentially direct descent, River's Edge. Mm. The film has continuously resonated for its audience as well. Case in point, Kurt Cobain, who said, Over the Edge pretty much defined my whole personality. It was really cool. Total anarchy. The, the, Matt, the Matt Dillon connection is kind of interesting because Matt Dillon was also the star of Singles, which uh, was directed by Cameron Crowe and kind of broke grunge to a national audience. The soundtrack had... The Replacements, Chris Cornell, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Mud Honey, um, all these Screaming Trees, Jane's Addiction, Pixies, and um, Nirvana's not on that album, but Matt Dillon doing a lot for grunge music. <laughs> Way to go. Good job, buddy. Uh <laughs> 
In the HBO documentary Kurt Cobain montage of Heck, there's tape of Kurt saying, God, that movie has such an effect on me. I wanted to be a vandal and I wanted to hold everyone captive in the school. Welcome to New Granada, where people come to escape city life. It has safe streets, clean air, good schools. It's a perfectly planned community. But something strange is happening. Something that wasn't part of the plan. Seems to me like you all were in such a hopped up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. Something that could drive this town over the edge. You were to take these home to your parents is to let them know about a special emergency meeting to discuss the problems about your people. In Montage of Heck, the movie relies heavily on music with animations from Kurt's notebooks. It's pretty cool. And there was one shot that they showed that was just a notebook. And it's like his handwriting. And it says, smells like teen spirit. Needed. One. School gym. Two. Cast of 100 students, comma, one custodian. Three. Cheerleader outfits with anarchy, A, on chest. Four, access to abandoned mall. Five, lots of fake jewelry. Six, Mercedes Benz. So they didn't get the mall or the jewelry or the Mercedes Benz. <laughs> but I, don't, I feel like they didn't need it. So the, video, the video's director, Sam Bayer, was kind of the school gym teacher of the whole thing. Sure. Um, to quote louder sound, in Bayer's mind, the cheerleaders needed to be conventional babes. The mayhem had to be contained, and there was certainly no mashing to take place. The idea was for the crowd to look bored, complacent. When that didn't happen, Bayer grabbed a bullhorn and yelled at everyone to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cobain and Bayer got into a screaming match on set, and afterwards, Kurt like told everyone that Bayer was a little Napoleon. He said, it was just like we were in school and he was the mean teacher. Still, the video got a lot of traction within weeks of its release. So Teen Spirit was on heavy rotation on MTV, putting Nirvana directly into the suburban homes of America. I remember America. in America. I remember that in the late 90s, MTV did like a countdown of the best videos of all time. And this was mm. definitely in the top 10. I remember really, really loving this video. Um, so Dave Grohl told Scroll when the Smells Like Teen Spirit video came out and people saw what we were doing, we were fucking shit up and having fun. And I think that's pretty much what every kid in the world wants, to be able to feel like they're fucking something up and getting away with it. Great. No notes. <laughs> no notes. Well, my only note is <laughs> tell that to Chris Novoselic now. I know. Well, his book's kind of interesting. Chris Novoselic's book? Yes. We'll get to that later. Okay. So, what is this song about? Um, I mean, I've honestly never thought about it. In my 36 years of being alive, I've never wondered what Smells Like Teen Spirit is about. And, and while watching the video, I, um, I kind of, it kind of all clicked for me. Which is, mm -hmm. so the, okay, cor tell me. The, the chorus goes with the lights out, it's less dangerous, here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious, here we are now, entertain us. So, it sounds like, for the first time ever, for me at least, it sounded like Kurt is speaking as the voice of his audience, talking to him, right? He's, so, he is, the, the narrator of the song is someone going to see Nirvana and saying like, 
we're all in a really bad place right now, but you, Mr. Musician, can channel that in in a way that will not destroy us all. And even in the second verse where he says, I'm worse at what I'm worst at what I do best, and for this gift I feel blessed. Our little group, right? He's referring to Nirvana, has always been and always will and all and always will until the end. So I think it's I think it is a conversation between like a musician and his fans about the anger and sadness and darkness that they're feeling. That's my interpretation. After hearing the song literally 150 times and only being introspective of it once well your interpretation is completely valid and i would have said that probably no matter what you said um because (laughs) after watching multiple interviews with nirvana in which they claim they fucking hate interviews they don't want to give them and uh at one point this interviewer was like yeah but don't you want your fans to know what like what your songs are about and what you were experiencing and (laughs) they're like no they were like they literally were like, no, it's about what they're experiencing. We want to know what's their interpretation. I love that. Fuck off. <laughs> That's super cool. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to talk about the writing of Teen Spirit and, and let all of you fans come up with your own interpretations and send them energetically back to Nirvana through the ether. Smells Like Teen Spirit was written after Dave Grohl joined the group in 1990, and he was sleeping on Kurt's floor. Grohl was dating Kathleen Hanna, who was singer of the feminist punk band Bikini Kill. Bikini Kill rules. Go on. This was a couple of weeks that Kurt was also dating Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale. So it seems like you kind of know this story. Me, yes. I mean, I have a shit ton of notes and quotes, but do you want to tell me what you know? Like, Yeah, so... So what I've heard, the, the story behind Smells Like Teen Spirit is Teen Spirit, this is like something that people our age don't know. Teen Spirit was the name of a deodorant. Um, and so it would be it's like... the first deodorant my mom bought me. And I was really? like, I smell. Do I smell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I had no idea. But yeah. So um, Kathleen Hanna wrote on Kurt Cobain's wall, Kurt smells like Teen Spirit. As in, Kurt Cobain, you smell like this deodorant. And he, like, didn't know what it was referencing, I guess, because he hadn't heard of the deodorant and thought it was, like, a cool name for a song. Sure. So I'll give you a bunch more background about that night. Please do. From Biography.com, the song that launched 1,000 grunge bands and changed the course of popular music found its conceptual spark in a grocery store in Olympia, Washington in August 1990. While pacing the aisles, Kurt Cobain's musician girlfriend, Toby Vale, and her Bikini Kill bandmate, Kathleen Hanna, came upon a can of deodorant named Teen Spirit. We were both joking around because the name looked so funny, Hanna told Double J in 2016. I mean, who names a deodorant Teen Spirit? What does Teen Spirit smell like? Like a locker room? Like pot mixed with sweat? (laughs) Like the smell when you throw up in your hair at a party? This would be like the equivalent of me writing a song called Lindsay smells like Axe body spray. Right. And then I was like, Oh, (laughs) body spray must mean that I'm a revolutionary. Yeah. It'll, (laughs) it'll change music forever. (laughs) 
So I'm just going to be paraphrasing, but a lot of what I'm about to say, the source is a British weekly magazine, Kerrang, which Freddie or Victoria, you may kindly correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Kerrang humbly calls itself the world's greatest metal, punk, hardcore, rock music publication. Oh, yeah. I've always called it Kerrang. I, I know it. Uh, so the story was called Nirvana, the story behind Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it's written by journalist Stevie Chick, and I'm paraphrasing mostly. Lyrically, Teen Spirit painted an ambivalent portrait of the indie rock revolutionaries Kurt had lived alongside. It's titled Drawing Upon Memories of a Night of Civil Disobedience with Kathleen Hanna. So Kathleen later recalled this night. It was August in 1990 and said they were fueled by a bottle of Canadian club whiskey. And Ah. as angry feminists, they decided to do a little public service and they graffitied the exterior. This is Kurt and Kathleen. They graffitied the exterior of a teen pregnancy center, which had just opened in town and was, in fact, a front for a right wing operation telling teenage girls they'd go to hell if they had abortions. Wow. Those still exist today. (laughs) So Kathleen uh, graffiti's fake abortion clinic, comma, everyone on the walls. And then Kurt added in six foot high red letters, God is gay. And then they continue drinking and they stumble back to Kurt's apartment where Kathleen continues graffitiing Kurt's walls, including the words, Kurt smells like teen spirit. So two months later, Cobain split up with Vale. This is, quote, louder sound. As much as he felt energized by her creativity, Kurt was a solo creator, self-hating and dissatisfied with life in Olympia, but not wanting to admit it and frustrated that his relationship with Vale wasn't progressing as he wanted. So he split up with her. He was a wreck, recalled Grohl. Contrary to popular belief, he broke up with me, Vale told Louder Sound. The idea that I broke his heart and that he was helpless and fatally wounded by that is just stupid romantic tripe. I'm sick of being the girl who is blamed for his suffering. That idea doesn't come from anything that really happened. So even though this quote really doesn't have to do with the story that we're telling, I included it because I know we've been requested to do a Courtney and Kurt episode. We will do a Courtney and Kurt episode. That is not this episode, but this is a theme that we have seen. I'll do a I'll I'll do a one I'll do a ten second Courtney and Kurt episode right now. She didn't kill him. That's bullshit. Next week, and on she's not responsible for, for yeah. her suffering. Not correct. even okay. So yeah. So neither was Toby Vale. Okay, so four months after he broke up with Vale, six months after the whiskey-fueled graffiti night, Kurt calls up Kathleen Hannah, and this is what she, this is her quote. Kurt called me up and said, hey, do you remember that night? There's a thing you wrote in my wall. It's actually quite cool, and I want to use it. Kurt said in Come As You Are, the story of Nirvana. I took it as a compliment. I thought it was a reaction to the conversation we were having about teen revolution, but it really meant that I smelled like the deodorant. I didn't know that the deodorant existed until months after the single came out. (laughs) But there's something cool about that. There's something cool about it being also about like commercialization and capitalism, even if it wasn't intended that way. Totally. Like I like it makes me like it more. (laughs) Um, And then this is from Toby Vale. Who really knows what the song's about? The songs sound great and some of the imagery is strong, but as far as them being about any one person or thing or situation, it's not clear, is it? They seem to be written in code. Smells Like Teen Spirit was supposed to be called Anthem, but Bikini Kill had a song called Anthem and we got in a big argument and I won, so he had to change it. Ah! (laughs) I fucking love that. (laughs) 
you can't call your song um, anthem we have a song called anthem fuck you nobody has ever called a song anthem before us <laughs> um i think that that's great i, I to, just to like skip back like one one idea to like that that I think that this goes to to the the thing that I was saying imperfectly before, which is that we all picture Kurt and Nirvana as these very serious, very wounded individuals, and then we're looking for someone who wounded them, right? You know, sure. and and Kurt was funny. Like this is a that is a objectively funny thing to happen is like fighting with your girlfriend over whose song gets to be called anthem. Yeah. And there's a lot of really funny, cute videos of him um, playing with his baby. FB? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was the last song Kurt wrote before recording Nevermind. And he sent it to album producer Butch Vig as a cassette tape. Butch Vig. <laughs> Couldn't remember who produced and that album. <laughs> it was only a week so he sends uh, this one week ahead of the Nevermind recording session in LA. And I'm going to send that to you now. The demo? The tape. The tape cassette recording. Oh, I've never heard this. Ooh, I like the syncopation. <laughs> oh. This is the melody to a different Nirvana song. Still rips. The song's awesome. Chorus. He does what I do when I'm writing songs, which is like I find a cool part that I like and I play it too many times. And so, like, all of the, all, every part of the song is just, like, a little bit longer than it actually winds up being on the record. Probably because oh, yeah. Butch Vig or someone is like, we don't need this much of it. It's cool. We need less.
this is what Butch told Kerrang about the recording session. It was a boombox recording of a rehearsal, oh, of the rehearsal. Kurt introduced it by saying, hey, Butch, we got some new songs for you. And we also got Dave Grohl, and he's the best drummer in the world. They clicked False. into Teen Spirit with the scratchy guitar at the start. It was so fucking distorted. I could barely hear anything. But underneath the fuzz, I could hear hello, hello, melodies and chord structures. And even though the recording was terrible, I was super excited. Uh, right before the recording session, Nirvana ran through their songs at a rehearsal space nearby. It blew me away, said Butch. It was the first time I heard Dave Grohl play live, and it sounded so amazing. I was floored when I heard it. I remember pacing around thinking, oh my god, this sounds crazy intense. So Kurt said his main influence had been the Pixies. It's just Pixies. It's just talking heads. It's also just Pixies. <laughs> Kurt's main influence <laughs> had been Pixies, comma, the. No, and there's he no told drop Rolling the, Stone. It's cleaner. <laughs> he told rolling stone i connected with that band so heavily we used their sense of dynamics being ah, soft that's, what, that's what i wanted to talk about great you're gonna get to yeah and loud and hard <laughs> indeed chris novoselic worried that the song was too pixies ish telling kurt people are really going to nail us for this fuck yeah steal steal so- steal <laughs> So yes, tell us more. Okay, so uh, the uh, one of the like hallmarks of grunge was doing the same thing with like punks was doing things simply but very loudly. And so what the innovation that grunge did, um, Pixies were very good at it. Nirvana was very good at it. I'm not saying that they originated it, but this is like they were masters of it. Is like basically playing the same riff the entire song, right? The mm-hmm. the entire the entirety of smells like teen spirit is four chords which is f b flat g sharp c sharp over and over and over again except for the but everything else is is that um and the way that they tell you what part of the song they're on or what part of the song to care about is by is through dynamics is through the interaction between loud and soft and you would imagine that um you get be soft in the verses and loud in the choruses. But the thing that Nirvana does super well, probably better than anybody else, is they start to get loud at the end of the verses before they mm. go into the choruses. So it seems like the song is bubbling over and, and the players are so excited that they can't even contain themselves before they get loud. So going, if you listen to like just the parts where they're going in from the verse into the chorus, you can hear the the, the things bubbling up and up and up and up and up. Yeah, and then there's building. still an explosion. And that's very similar to the Pixie, the Pixie song, Debaser. <laughs> Um, which is also like a, you know, there's this like loud and soft kind of up and down. However, what really set Nirvana apart from other grunge bands was Butch Vig and the addition of that, um, that type of production where they would do things. Am I stepping on toes yet? Or no? No, I was about to say, tell me more about Butch Vig because I didn't do a ton of research in this area. Butch Vig was a producer. He produced Smashing Pumpkins. He produced Nevermind. And he produced Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins, Sonic Youth's Dirty, 
Uh, he in later years he did Jimmy World's Chase This Light. He worked with Against Me. He worked with uh, Green Day for 21st Century Breakdown. But the thing that that Butch Vig brought to Nirvana and to the idea of grunge is that you can produce a dirty, trashy album like you produce a pop album. So on Bleach the there was like this lo-fi sound that they embraced and they didn't do overdubs overdubs if you remember from our uh phil specter episode is like re-recording things to make the sound feel thicker right so there's only a certain level of thickness you can get with a three-piece band and one tube Mm -hmm. screamer on a guitar so butch vig had nirvana do overdubs to make the entire musical soundscape sound much bigger so when teen spirit explodes into the chorus it feels far far bigger than anything pixies had done at that point because they still weren't like embracing that type of production Right. And Kurt wasn't totally either. Uh, This is quote Butch. I said to Kurt, I want you to double check the guitars and vocals to really make this jump out of the speakers. Absolutely the fuck not. Yeah. And he thought that was cheating, especially with his vocals. So I had him do multiple volts. So he like tricked him and had him do multiple vocal takes. And he sang them so consistently that Butch ran them at the same time as a double track. Yes. So absolutely. This is like this is production 101 right and this is always the like the push and pull of like a band who's obsessed with being authentic which is that they don't want to do anything that they can't do live exactly the same Mm -hmm. they just want to record their live performance and like if you watch the beatles documentary get back like that's basically what they're trying to do with that record as well and vig (laughs) tricks him but you can hear the, the, if you can actually hear the double tracks so um if you listen if you pay really really close attention and this is not just the song this is basically any song produced this way you can hear just a little bit of phasing so it feels like there is an effect on the voice of like this weird spacey chorus effect that is just the song being sung twice in, at very similar in very similar ways mm-hmm I like how you're saying spacey effect because I, as someone who's not trained in like music theory, but I know exactly what you mean and I've heard it in mm-hmm. this song a million times. So I can explain sonically like what that is, what's happening, but it might not be all that interesting. It's interesting to some people. Okay. I know it's interesting to some. So the phasing (laughs) so all all music is just sine waves right uh air kind of in this up and down pattern and when you play two notes you play an e on one thing and an e on another thing you would have to to make it sound like one pure note you'd have to start them at the exact same time in this sine wave and the sine wave is is going up and down like at least 500 times per second so it's really really impossible to get them to start at the exact same time so if they're slightly out of phase and they're going up and down there's this like little bit of clashing that happens against each other plus it's like kind of impossible to sing the exact same note like there are slight frequency differences so because that's called phasing right when the when the note starts at a slightly different time and Mm -hmm. it's um when the when they are two different slightly two different pitches you can hear the 
the frequencies knocking against each other. So if you've ever heard um, someone like tune a piano, someone will play like one note and then another note and you'll hear like the bong, bong, bong very quietly of the two frequencies like smacking against each other. Mm-hmm. We can hear this on like a cheap keyboard. Um, yeah, knocking or beating. And so especially when Kurt goes with the lights out, right? When he when he really screams into that chorus you can hear the slight phasing of the frequencies of of his voice and it rules it does rule and thank you for explaining that to us and it mixes it mixes the like the well-produced with the not well-produced right because like you Mm -hmm. wouldn't that's like that's like a essentially it's the same thing as like a distortion pedal right where like you're hearing something that you shouldn't quote-unquote be hearing it is an imperfection but they're using it as a thickening agent or whatever and they're using it to to help uh round out the recording yeah thickening agent grosses me out a little but thickening it's like a roux (laughs) they're making it into a roux (laughs) tell me about the drums so in addition to the guitar riff which is a, a, a master of dynamics but kind of normal uh dave Grohl recently like within the last six months or so um just admitted that he stole the drum beat to smells like teen spirit from the gap band uh that that a lot of his drum beats were inspired by um by disco and so this is a clip of him talking to pharrell about his unique drum beat for quote-unquote unique drum beat for teen spirit that was Decent. I wasn't like your level. Like, I'm. Dude, stop saying I'm a good drummer because I'm the most basic fucking drummer. If you listen to Nevermind, the Nirvana record, I pulled so much stuff from the Gap Band and Cameo and Tony Thompson on every one of those songs. All that. That's wow. It's old, old disco. That's all it is. <laughs> Can I not hear that? Nobody makes the connection. That's straight up Gap Band. face. I told Tony Thompson that I came to my house for a barbecue with somebody, and I was like, man, I just want to thank you because, you know, I owe so much. I've been ripping you off my whole life. He goes, I know. Whoa. No. A big <laughs> disco flam. <clears throat> like, White people stealing black music. Yeah. Disco flam. I think, I think it is more interesting in this case because the genres are so wildly different sure um so kurt said that teen spirit is such a cliched riff when i first came up with it chris looked at me and said that is so ridiculous hell yeah um and there's so many headlines uh about kurt and nirvana hating smells like teen spirit here's one quote that he gave rolling stone that's pretty consistent with the messaging of we hate this song this is (laughs) quote Kurt everyone has focused on that song so much the reason it gets a big reaction is people have seen it on MTV a million times it's been pounded into their brains but I think there are so many other songs that I've written that are that are as good if not better than that song like drain you that's definitely as good as teen spirit I love the lyrics and I never get tired of playing it maybe if it was as big as teen spirit I wouldn't like it as much yep sorry bro As I mentioned before, Kurt was a really sensitive person and he hated being humiliated. So part of me wonders if the reason he hated Teen Spirit so much is because he thought 
Kurt smells like teen spirit implied something profound about him, but it was actually just poking fun. Yeah. He was the butt of a joke that he didn't realize. Yeah. I, I mean, also there are like a bunch of instances of him kind of making fun of himself before anyone else can make fun of him. Yeah. But yeah, I, I that's, that's, that's quite possible. Or I mean, the kind of a, a, a cousin to that is like, it is, a, it is, I don't want to say a shitty riff, but it is like a cliche riff. It is not all that musically inventive. It is not all that lyrically inventive. It just like is the perfect, you know, confluence of all the things together. And so he is rejecting it before someone can look too deeply and say, the song isn't actually that good. Like he's the one sure. first to be like, yeah, this song sucks. I have, I have better songs, blah, 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 blah. Sure. Um, and you can talk now if you want about, um, what you were going to say, like him um, of himself before anyone else can. Yeah, there's, there's a famous clip of him. Um, I forget what show it was on. I want to say it was in Germany, but I can't remember where they, they wanted Nirvana to play Teen Spirit to a backing track, and they definitely did not want to do that. And so Kurt tanked the performance and sang it like a crooner, like a 50s crooner style. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is pretty hilarious. And also, like when everyone was talking about how he was like a drug addict and a junkie, they like wheeled him out in a wheelchair, and he was wearing like a hospital gown, mm-hmm. and he got up to sing, and then like collapsed. But like he was just kidding, in similar fashion. Um. So yeah, this is uh, it was a British music. It was top of the pops. So if you listen to our Oasis episode last week, uh, Nirvana was gonna play teen spirit on top of the pops and the show had a policy that required artists to sing live vocals or over pre-recorded backing tracks and kurt was not a fan of this it's pretty fucking weird i had this i downloaded this on off of like limewire when i was a kid <laughs> and but it said it was like a different band covering this the song oh it did yeah having sold over a million records in six weeks they're straight in at number nine here's Smells like teen spirit. So Kurt's like a mannequin fake playing the guitar. (laughs) Chris is not (laughs) swinging the bass over his head. Swinging it around. But the vocals are really something special. Also in Europe, they clap on the one and the three and I hate it. Load up on drugs, kill your friends as far as She's overjoyed, self And I'm like equal parts sad and turned on and, and horny. Like, yeah, yeah. That was the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though, song still rips with him doing it like this. I know. I don't know who he's doing an impression of, but it's somebody. Ryan Gosling. Yeah, or maybe like the guy from Crash Test Dummies or something. So there you go. All right, so it's September 1991. 
Smells Like Teen Spirit has just been released on the radio. And the band is having their Nevermind album release party at Rebar in Seattle. Do you know this story? I don't. All right. So in the 90s, up until April 2000, actually, the Washington State Liquor Control Board had two distinct categories for what most people commonly consider bars. This is from Seattle newspaper The Stranger, the one-time home of Lindy West, my hero. Quote, Stranger. There were taverns like Rebar and there were cocktail lounges like Capitol Hill's Cha-Cha Lounge where spirits or hard liquors could be served. In order to have a hard liquor license, the place needed to serve food. Sandwiches, peanuts, popcorn, nachos, french fries, and jalapeno poppers didn't count. Didn't count. According to the... Did not count. Mm. According to the Liquor Control Board, to prove its culinary legitimacy, a bar needed to serve at least four complete meals and have four required kitchen objects, adequate refrigeration, an oven, a grill, and a broiler. Okay. These are the objects. (laughs) Refrigerator, oven, grill, broiler, I think. Great. I think those are the objects. They came after a colon, so one can only imagine that the punctuation is being used correctly. One can imagine. Rebar did not have all of those things. <laughs> okay. So it was not a tavern. It was not a cocktail. Oh, it was a tavern. Lounge. It was a tavern, yes. So Steve Wells was the co-owner of Rebar until 20, 2005. Now this is his account, which is a little confusing slash unreliable because we know that Nevermind came out with Geffen, not Sub Pop. But here is Wells' account that he told the stranger. Something most people today can't even imagine about the Washington State Liquor Control Board in the late 1980s and early 90s, getting a license to sell beer and wine, let alone spirits, was a very difficult process. Maintaining that license could be even more difficult, especially downtown. New clubs, especially gay clubs or any clubs that played black music, were under the microscope. In 1991, Rebar became very popular and naturally then attracted Unwarranted attention from the WSLCB agents, Washington State Liquor Control Board agents. I was, I was getting there. I was, I was doing it in my head. Okay. <laughs> on busy nights and sometimes just around 1.30 a.m., even on slow nights, they would often park their cars across the street watching the front door and would make sweeps through the bar, checking IDs, usually in a very confrontational manner. Surprise. That's the background story. In the meantime, Seattle bands were really taking off, and it was a point of honor for Sub Pop to have Nirvana's record release party for Nevermind at Rebar. Sub Pop did a great job of promoting the party and bought a couple of kegs of beer. Bruce Pavitt... (laughs) Sub Pop did such a good job that they were geffen. Right? Co-owner of Sub Pop was on the decks, spinning disco, funk, etc. Everything went great for about two hours, but then I noticed that Kurt, Chris, Dave, and others kept going up to the DJ booth, and they were obviously getting drunker and drunker, way more than they could on beer. Then the beer ran out, and things started to get kind of rowdy. Then we noticed the WSLCB's cars had pulled up into the parking lot across the street, headlights on, pointing at our front door. I got scared, climbed into the DJ booth, and found Bruce and his buddies chugging on half gallon of, I think, Jack Daniels, the large size bottle that's known as a handle, because it has one. Empty bottles littered the floor. Frankly, I would have liked to join in, but all this activity forced me to become an uptight queen. 
Suddenly, Kurt, Chris, and maybe Dave started a food fight. I guess I freaked about the whole situation, rounded them up, including Bruce, and with the help of the doorman, got them out the door just in time for all of them to barf on the curb. Amazing. Soon after, the WSLCB guys approached with their flashlights, and I then declared the party was over, turned up the lights, and told everyone to leave, making me out to be a total asshole with the crowd. Oh, well, that's how I remember it. And to this day, I love them all. That's great. And that's like that's like the 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 counterculture bona fides that they want anyway. We're so metal that we we're so rock and roll that we got kicked out of our own party. Right. Um, And I'm just going to offer a really brief other account that goes something like this. The free beer ran out. The band was drinking whiskey. Nevermind had played twice over and the band was getting sick of it. And so they started (laughs) ripping down posters. And demanding that the DJ play something else. That's why they were going up to the DJ booth. They're like, stop playing yeah. Nirvana. Stop playing our our stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is according to Nils Bernstein of the Nirvana fan club who provided the refreshments for the party. A tamale was thrown at Kurt's head and Kurt responded by sending green goddess herb dip back at the attacker. And that's how the massive food fight erupted. Fucking Seattle. <laughs> Green goddess herb dip. Fuck off. Yeah. Right. I love that. All right. So now I want to talk a little bit more about um, something that we're getting to with this rebar story, right? Rebar is known now as sort of being like a home of arts, artists, maybe even like a home for outcasts, uh, super progressive. Ultimately, rebar just became home for the disenfranchised. So I'm not from Seattle, but I, uh, its reputation precedes it. So besides inspiring other musicians, Nirvana was progressive in other ways. They made progressive attitudes such as gender equality, anti-racism, LGBT rights. They made these attitudes cool among a lot of music fans who were previously, you know, like listening to cock rock and heavy metal on repeat. Yeah, it's easy to confuse like loud music and angst for misogyny. Sure. According to Scroll, Cobain was perhaps the first male rock star to come out as a feminist and openly mocked any sexist or racist in the audience. That might not seem like much now, but at the time it was a big deal. Um, and this is from Chris Novoselic's 2004 book of Grudge on Government. In January of 1992, our second album, Nevermind, hit number one on the charts. This was totally unexpected. The label initially printed 50,000 copies of the record. That was supposed to last us for the next year or so. As a result of the sudden success, you couldn't, fi- you couldn't find the album in any stores, but that just added to the mystique. It's like a COVID test. Nirva- <laughs> it's like a COVID test. You Nirvana was truly a phenomenon. We virtually came out of nowhere and found ourselves plopped in the middle of pop culture. The album broke through with the single Smells Like Teen Spirit. It turned into an anti-anthem that rallied the disaffected. I've always felt that the song was an observation of a culture mired in boredom amidst relative luxury. In other words, many have the means to make their own way, but choose not to do so. The lyrics don't convey a literal message guiding people toward a sense of liberation. It's simply a comment on a condition. Shut the fuck up, Chris. <laughs> you really don't like this. He's like a libertarian I will continue. Now. Rock music of the late 80s had been very predictable. In 1990, no rock record had even made the top 10. Nevermind was the right record at the right time. Great original rock bands like R.E.M. and Jane's Addiction had previously blazed a trail to the top of the pop charts, but Nevermind really announced the arrival of a new regime. The era of the big hair bands was over. 
The old bands touted merely a token rebellion. Their symbols of rock and roll, like bandanas, whiskey bottles, and motorcycles, were cliches that only created an image of nonconformity. The New Guard had the, held the skeptical sensibilities of the subculture, along with the inherent rebellion of it all. In 1991, the first war with Iraq broke out. I recall being so disgusted with the whole affair. War is the most horrific of human endeavors. And I've never comprehended its glorification. Watching society cheer it on like a football game affirmed my status as an outsider. Odds are the average person had never even heard of Iraq. But how quickly they lined up to join the parade of death and destruction toward an obscure, faraway nation. From the luxury of distance, war was waged to the Schlager tune of tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. A song for the troops so far from home. The phrase, we support our troops, appeared on thousands of car bumpers. It was not lost on me that these vehicles needed to burn Kuwaiti oil to get down the road. I resented the notion that if you didn't support the war, you didn't support the troops. I've always supported working people, and I didn't need big, bellicose oil men trying to paint me into a rhetorical corner. I marched, against the war with, I marched against the war with zeal, and Nirvana played a benefit concert opposing it, but the public fervor was too strong to gain any sense of balance. The enduringly nasty nuances of American foreign policy didn't matter. It was war season, and time to get on board. I was in a music store in Olympia buying some bass strings when a man in a military uniform started to make nasty jokes about Iraqi women. He was quite jovial because Hussein had been driven out of Kuwait that day. I remember glaring at him and feeling livid. It would probably be the same revulsion I'd have if I were forced to witness necrophilia. I thank God I had my own home and way of life for shelter from the madness. In the spring of 1992, I was invited to a rally in Olympia. The occasion was the passage of a censorship law, and I knew the rally's organizers, leaders of an organization called the Washington Music Industry Coalition. I showed up a little after the rally started, with the intention of just letting the organizers do their thing. I didn't plan on speaking. But being in a band with a hit record makes blending into a crowd hard. Immediately upon my arrival, reporters approached me and started asking about the law. I was startled. I must have said that I was for freedom of speech or something like that, but otherwise I was totally unprepared. So much for just being there. I was merely the bass player in a rock band. Wouldn't the press be better off talking to the people who organized the event? The organizers were way more informed on the issue. Why was my opinion so important? The answer is, people were already listening to my music, so naturally they wanted to know more about me. There was a real connection. People look for meaning in their music and their politics. The November 1992 election resulted in the largest youth vote since 1971, the year the 26th Amendment was ratified. Youth culture, especially music media outlets like MTV and the organization Rock the Vote, served as a conduit promoting civic participation. The 26th Amendment, which lowered the voting age to 18, was a direct product of the role played by the youth in the enduring social changes of the 1960s. We caught an echo of that populism, and in 1992, youth were credited with electing the first Democrat in 12 years. Nirvana was keenly interested in the election, beginning with the primaries. I remember admonishing Kurt for sending $200 to the Jerry Brown presidential campaign. As a rule, Brown accepted only contributions no greater than 100, so I felt anything over that would violate his ethic. Kurt just shrugged, and indeed, the Brown campaign never sent the money back. In Oregon that year, Ballot Measure 9 proposed institutionalizing discrimination against gays and lesbians. Nirvana headlined a fundraiser opposing it in September 1992. We also organized a benefit in April 1993 to bring attention to the plight of women in the Balkan conflicts of the time. We used our stature for what we thought was right. 
In concert or on TV, we wore t-shirts of our favorite bands, hoping that the power of music would steer people toward independence. Robert Fripp of King Crimson once told me that in the late 60s, many thought music was going to save the world. I don't think that Chris Novoselic is a dumb person, but at this point in his political career, he's, I would say, uh, more than a little bit short-sighted. Um, in an interview with Reason TV, he said that he was an anarcho-capitalist socialist moderate. I don't know. Um, and he said that his political views couldn't be e- easily categorized, but he finds fault in the political philosophy of both the left and right wing. I think this guy is like the winner of the That's both. That's realistic. Yeah, right? I think that this guy is w- the winner of the both sides Olympics because he supported Lawrence Lessig, who is a constitutional scholar, and then uh, Gary Johnson for president in 2016. And then in twenty, mm. and then in twenty twenty, after Donald Trump was talking about uh, the George Floyd protests, the Derek Chauvin mm-hmm, protests, mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. called on Facebook. He called Trump strong and direct, but added he should not be sending troops into states. And after receiving backlash from the original post, Novoselic clarified. As an avowed independent, I don't endorse a major party or candidate, and it feels insane to have to say this, but I don't support fascism, and I don't support an authoritarian state. I believe in a civilized society and that we all have to work toward that. So I think I just wish that he had a stronger stance on this stuff. He also, I don't think he ever really recovered from that head injury. Me either. (laughs) Interesting kind of coda to this all everything that you're talking about with with kurt as like the first rock and roll feminist we had already planned this episode for actually like a a week or two before this happened um on january 23rd 2022 so just three days ago as the, the recording of this episode twitter user mags Vizags writes kurt cobain was a trans girl she is ours now we will not be returning her and this received 3,000 quote, over 3,000 quote tweets in two days. And the majority of the reactions, this is from knowyourmeme.com. The majority of the reactions seemed critical, uh, seemingly for the poster, seemingly pulling the theory out of thin air. But there, there also is some truth to it. So there are two people, there are two schools of thought. One of them is like, hey, this is in bad taste. Like, why, why are we doing this to this dead person who doesn't actually have any any ability to weigh in on this and then other people uh brought receipts so at josie star girl on twitter posted a a picture of uh, kurt's journal yeah of which he he kept you know meticulous journals or, or whatever and these are lyrics like rejected lyrics to all apologies that didn't make it into the final song and the lyrics read such an easy thing, such a shiny ring. Let me go some breasts. I cheated on my tests. I don't have the right to say what's on your mind. You're not allowed to sing all apologies. So, okay. And he, you know, definitely bent gender a little bit and, and wore dresses. I think mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a stretch. And I think kind of normal people on the internet, which might be a contradiction in terms understand that this is this is a, mostly a joke but uh yeah so the internet has claimed kurt cobain as a trans woman which may or may not be true gender's fake gender is fake in 1993 that's when in utero was finally released 
But yeah, the demand for more material from Nirvana had been so great that an album was released between Nevermind and In Utero. It was called Incesticide. And this was, like I said, like rare recordings and B-sides to previously released music. That's pretty heavy duty. They did that with The Killers, too, where the first two records were so crazy popular that they did like a B-sides record called Sawdust. Oh, yeah? yeah. I didn't know you were such a killer scholar. I, I like The Killers up until Sawdust. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do some Killers episodes then. Oh, yeah. We all know what happened in 1994. For those of us who don't. Uh, Kurt's drug use became out of control, and he checked into a drug rehabilitation center. During the course of his treatment, he jumped the wall and headed back to Seattle for a week's period of time from April 1st till the discovery of his body on April 8th. He was unable to be located by family and friends who had filed missing persons reports. He also, leading up to this, had tried to kill himself once before. And I heard Courtney Love telling the story that, like, Kurt was so sensitive, he could sense that I was going to cheat on him, but I never did it. But I didn't even tell him about it, but he could tell. And well, that's, that's uh, that sounds he... just like paranoia. <laughs> He's so sensitive. They could sense that I was going to do something I wasn't going to do. Uh, no, she said she was going to do it. Oh, she was going to do it. Like she had a plan in place. She was in London. It and she was, was like, Courtney's fault. <laughs> um, and then he took like a bunch of rebuterol and champagne and he was in a coma and he came back to life and then sadly died kurt is a member of the 27 club uh, alongside many other very famous rock musicians whose lives ended at the age of 27 um kurt for whatever reason is the one of the only ones that where we the the general wisdom is that his partner just like did it um and they're there's like all these kind of rumors that like oh the amount of heroin in his body was so much and he wouldn't have been able to like shoot himself and he like wrote in his diary i'm definitely not going to kill myself if i wind up dead it's definitely my wife no he didn't do that um no he didn't i I'm, I mean, you can look I was at his joking. diaries <laughs> i know you're joking but there's other we do this for other people aviv okay <laughs> they also know that i'm joking uh, I know, but I'm just also reflecting on all of the actual diary entries that say, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. Or like the I, Kurt Cobain of sound mind and body, like this is my last will and testament. In the case of my wife's death, like my child goes to blah, blah, blah. Like, come on. It wasn't Courtney. Yeah. And and he um, he suffered from a ton of chronic pain um Mm, stomach problems stomach problems and scoliosis and people like think that the scoliosis was from him the way he like played guitar or that it didn't you know didn't help but that could have led to his original drug abuse there there's a lot of elements that went into this poor man's eventual taking of his own life that like wasn't his wife like putting a shotgun to his chest or whatever which is nonsense also, I think there's a little bit of the element of like with so many people who are creative geniuses, it's somehow like linked with a bit of madness mm-hmm. because besides writing music, he was always creating um, art and poetry and uh, what do you call it? Little cartoon. Yeah, like little animations or whatever. Comics, zines. 
Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's just so bizarre to me that he is the one that we have like latched on to that could, he was so, it couldn't possibly have been that he did it to himself. Just look at all of his lyrics. They were so sunny and happy all the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, like, why are we so obsessed with him as the person who definitely didn't kill himself when all signs point he, to the fact that he did? He definitely did. He was a junkie. Which is um, sad. Sadly. It is sad. A, a junkie incapable of loving himself and, you know, wrestling with a lot of issues. Demons. Demons. All right. So, lastly, why is Nirvana and Nevermind in the news this month still well obviously because we're doing we're rounding out 90s month with (laughs) smells like (laughs) obviously that no i don't know why because the judge finally threw out the lawsuit from spencer eden what you haven't been following this no what is this months what is who is spencer eden spencer eden is the baby who appeared on the cover of never yes i did hear about this (laughs) Okay, so he has filed multiple complaints against Kurt Cobain's estate and Nirvana's surviving members, claiming that from the lawsuit that he has uh, suffered lifelong damages and like like some child pornography stuff. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Let's back up. So the cover of Nevermind, the album that Smells Like Teen Spirit is on, is a super famous album cover, but it's a young baby in a swimming pool under the water chasing like a dollar bill that's on a fishing fishing pole or something. And so I yeah. guess that guy's Spencer Eden now. He's in his 30s. Yes. He's in his 30s. His name is Spencer Eden. He's literally spent his entire life like like recreating the photo and like his whole claim to fame is like i'm that baby yeah that's literally his fucking meal ticket and then i don't know if some lawyers got a hold of him or if he just had this fucking idea in the middle of the night but now uh like months ago maybe even longer uh he claimed that the photograph is child pornography and that he has suffered lifelong damages as a result of having his naked body on the cover if you my my dude, if you stopped telling literally everyone you ever met that you were the naked Nirvana baby, you would no longer be suffering lifelong damages from being the Nirvana baby. Correct. I'm going to start telling people that I was the Nirvana baby. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so on the, the 14th of January, the judge threw out the case. Good. Dismissed it frivolous it's over buddy it's over for you um and as a friend of the show jim mcdevitt says is one of the horsemen of the apocalypse this is from loudwire from five days ago they are gonna start selling nirvana nfts to uh, sold on february 20th which is kurt's birthday and the nfts are images from a concert that they did in 1991 never before seen images so if you take one thing away from this podcast ever of any of our episodes, it is do not buy a Nirvana NFT. And tell them why not. Because it's fucking stupid. NFTs are a Ponzi <laughs> scheme. Crypto is a Ponzi scheme. Nirvana would laugh in your fucking faces if you knew you were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to have a picture, a JPEG of them. You'd have to explain what a JPEG was first. And they railed against 
concert tickets costing $20. They're like, that's too much money. And so Kurt would think it is the literal funniest thing in the world that you are spending obscene amounts of money for a dumb picture of him. First question is, what do, what do you think of artists who do charge anywhere between 50 to $75 for tickets? There are who charges charge that, that much, much money? Who does Apparently. that? Madonna. Madonna How does? much do we charge a ticket, John? Yeah, but that's like a burlesque show. It's a big production. Isn't it? Uh, 27? 12? You can speak. Three? Is that 12 or 21? 17 to 18 bucks a ticket? Wow. Madonna charges $50? Apparently. 50 to 75. Madonna yeah. wears Madonna wears fur too. Did you know that? Yeah. We were talking about, boy, we should charge $25 and really milk it. <laughs> really take them for all they got. If they want to come, let's see how bad they really want to see the band play. So, um, 17, we charge $17. So, what Fugazi's playing tonight, they're charging five. Six. So, how does that make you feel? Weak. <laughs> Exploited. Yep, see, they go from five to six to seven <laughs> to eight. <laughs> Pretty soon, it's all over, man. What is inflation? What with the Ticketmaster charge and... Don't fucking do it. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. Great. Okay, so this is what we're going out on this week. Ah, yes. What is it? Tell me. Live or- live orchestra and choir version of Smells Like Teen Spirit. No, why would you do this? Oh, no. A classical crossover phenomenon as seen on America's Got Talent. Live orchestra and choir version of... Smells like Teen Spirit. Read a book, guys. Just I actually like it. I hate it. Already, I hate it. Nope. Where can people find us on the internet, Aviv? I fucking, I'm dead. I've, I've died, so nowhere. You can find the show. This is our last episode on... Stop! <laughs> You can find our show at Lyrics for Lunch on Twitter and Instagram and for longer and weirder stuff. If you want to if you want to tell us how much you love the choir and orchestra version of Smells Like Teen Spirit or all the ways that Nirvana was like the Beatles, you can shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. And throw us a rate and review wherever you get your podcast. Tell your friends about us. I send don't us know. some song suggestions. Send us some you know song suggestions. Song you want us to do? Yeah, this this uh, this rounds out '90s January. I'm looking at the first uh, the first comment on this YouTube video is by this guy named Jim Kin- Kid Jim Kindred, and it says it's incredible to watch my 16 year old granddaughter have the poise and confidence to stand in front of 140 plus seasoned professionals and belt this out. Hashtag proud grandfather. Well, she's doing a great fucking job. She's the least worst part about this. Yes. <laughs> and tune in well, next you're week. You're welcome. <laughs> we'll tune in next week when we do this all over again with a new song. Somehow, it, this song wasn't ruined for me until this just this very end part. It ain't over until it's over. It ain't over until it's over. <laughs> um, so until next week, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying Adeniel, Adeniel. A Daniel. A Daniel. Hello, 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 how long? Hello, 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 it's 
Bring your friends, it's fun to lose and to pretend. Hello, 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 how low? 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 Hello, hello, hello